clean up, but look on the ASA. My gosh, they're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. This isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Hey, this is Bryant Arnold, also known as Dragon from Skinwalker Ranch, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am delighted to welcome on the podcast with me a gentleman with a quite fantastic resume, including being an executive board member of the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, an IT consultant and strategist, a defence contractor of over 20 years, also with more than 50 years of experience researching and investigating the UFO subject. Among many other titles, Mr. Rich Hoffman. Rich, welcome to the podcast. Hi, glad to be on with you, Andy. Rich, we have got a lot to discuss and I want to get straight into the conversation with you. Um, I I struggled to narrow this one down as to what to talk about, you know, in what order, because there was so much, especially from a listener questions point of view that was sent over to me. So hopefully I've managed to cover a good range. But first off, I want to talk about your background and what's led you to being so involved in the study of UAP, kicking off with what was your earliest memory of being interested in the subject of UFOs? Well, I got started in, uh, actually, when I was 13 years old, I was uh, in an eighth grade science class. Uh, and in the well, one of the assignments we had in the eighth, eighth grade science class was to do a, t- a 10 minute presentation on a topic that was on a list. Uh, I was late to the class and I got the list and it looked like everybody else had signed up for that 10 minute presentation you had to do. Uh, except nobody put their name next to the word UFO. Uh, so I stuck my name next to it. Didn't know what it was. Uh, at the end of the class, I went up to my eighth grade science teacher and said, Mr. Bayshore, what, what is the UFO? And he said, unidentified flying object. I said, well, I don't know. What is that? And he said, well, it's a, you know, you ever heard of flying saucers? And I said, yeah, I've, I've heard of them. I've, I've science fiction shows and stuff like that. I said, well, go study it, you know. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I took the assignment like, you know, lightly, very lightly, as a matter of fact. I think I, I might have got a book or said something about my trip to Venus or something of that nature. And uh, anyway, the, the bottom line is a couple of weeks later, I put together a, a very poor job of a presentation and I ended up getting actually what they call a D on that. I almost failed it. Uh, but I basically said that, well, if there was anything to this phenomenon, certainly everybody would know about it and you'd hear a lot more about it. And, uh, and obviously I didn't do my homework. Uh, my teacher had done his homework. He knew all about him, of course. And uh, he was asking me questions like, well, what, what about jet pursuits and shooting at them? And I said, what are you talking about? I had never didn't read any of that. Uh, and I 
just really couldn't answer many of the questions that he had that because he was very familiar with the topic. Well, anyway, make a long story short, I went home that evening and uh, or at least uh, after getting the D, uh, it might not have been that evening, but it might have been just right after that. Uh, on the evening news was a story about a the Lonnie Zamora case in Socorro, New Mexico. And that was on April 24th, 1964, that that happened. But anyway, it was on the evening news, and they were talking about the fact that there was an object that set down. There was a lot of uh, debris, that a uh, sagebrush that was that was apparently scorched or something. And they talked about physical evidence. Then they had like an interview with, I think, Lonnie Zamora, the police officer. Uh, and anyway, I heard that story. I thought, wow, that must have been what my teacher was talking about. And so ultimately what happened then was a couple days later, mm -hmm. I went with an aunt uh, and I actually got my first book on the subject uh, and the legitimate book on the subject. Uh, and it was the report on unidentified flying objects by Captain Edward Ruppelt, who was the former head of Project Blue Book. And I started reading it and I realized very quickly that Project Blue Book was located in Dayton, Ohio. And that's exactly where I was living. And so just up the street from me is this project that's studying UFOs. And I'm going like, wow. And just all of that just propelled me into uh, getting everything I could get my hands on relating to that. I every newspaper clipping that came out, I, I, I would clip them out and I would save them. Uh, I began I mean, basically going and, and reading every book that I could get now. Uh, and then... Within about a year or two, I was actually starting to give lectures in the city of Dayton on the subject of UFOs to adults. And uh, I had become, I had read so much that I just became like very knowledgeable about this thing. And so I started doing that. And then uh, there was a local uh, individual at the time, uh, which was Phil Donahue. And Phil Donahue had me on his show on TV. And suddenly, I became uh, at 15 years of age, I became like, uh, you know, very popular in the city of Dayton. And they was suddenly propelled into more presentations, more uh, meetings. I got connected with uh, others and started investigating cases in the city of Dayton. Uh, I then got connected with Project Blue Book, which was out at the base. And I got to know some of the people there. In fact, I got a phone number to call the radar approach control uh, at the base in case I uh, had a case that I was investigating and they would confirm or help me at least confirm whether or not that they had something in that area. And uh, it just went on from there. And Andy, I spent the rest of my life was ultimately changed by that, that one presentation. Now, Rich, you have declared yourself a fan of the subject, which is amazing as you can take that interest into your more scientific endeavours. Um, I'm talking about, I watched your appearance on a Vinnie Adams Disclosure Team podcast that was on around eight months ago. Very much an interview worth checking out, folks. I think you mentioned your desk was covered in, in UFO stuff and you've got the I Want to Believe poster. How common is that level of interest in the subject of UFOs with your colleagues and peers? Well, it's, it has increased over my 58 years, I mean, well, I, that I've been involved with this. The subject is, has, you know, obviously during when Blue Book was up and running and stuff like that, it was, uh, you know, a very credible subject to talk about. But anyway, I, I got started with the, uh, 
let me, let me clarify something. Step back for a second. Project Blue Book was located underneath the Air Material Command in Dayton, Ohio. Okay. I'm working at the Army Material Command. So it's the mm -hmm. same sister, it's a sister organization to the Air Force, uh, pro, where the Project Blue Book was located. Uh, and anyway, I, so I'm at the command level. It's a four-star command. Uh, and basically what I've seen over the years is a limited number of people that were interested in it that would occasionally come up and talk to me about it. But that has increased since 2017 when the topic just hit the news wires and everybody was. And in fact, I've had a lot of people that are saying, you know, it's, it's pretty much validated what I've been saying all along. <laughs> so it, it's it's kind of a situation where, oh, yeah, that's that's what Rich Hoffman does, you know. And so jokingly, now a lot of people refer to me as the the uh, basically the command ufologist. <laughs> and is that is that conversation much easier then for you to have? Do you feel that the stigma is going away from it and you can be more open about the speculative side of it, and, and let's be fair, the speculative side of the conversation can go into way different extremes and all kinds of directions. But I think even just seeing people like Chris Mellon talking about, you know, let's not, you know, discount the ET hypothesis on, you know, major news networks, that, that can be huge. And do you feel things like that have trickled down where people like yourself who are really doing the, the nitty gritty, the, the, the scientific driven side of this, it's making your life a bit easier? Yes, it is. Uh, you know, it, it definitely is because, you know, conversations that, you know, generally wouldn't have happened uh, that are now happening and people are willing to come up and talk about their sightings more uh, that they, they, they had something because it's now legitimized by the fact that the government's saying that they're real. Right. Mm -hmm. So they, they feel a little bit more open and willing to talk about it now. Uh, because the government said, hey, they're real, that they're, they're, there are UFOs out there. And, and it's no longer the, the, that, that I'm a loony. <laughs> I'm crazy or I'm whatever, you know, I mean, I, so I can talk about it. And so that's what I've seen is that generally there, there's more openness where people feel a, little, a lot more comfortable about it. They're willing to share more. And one of the things we're seeing within uh, SCU, the organization that I'm with, when we created it, we were hoping to make it into the science world because they could feel safe talking amongst themselves now. And they didn't have the the other groups and the other kind of strange things that are out there that they had to deal with. So it was now that they could actually open up and talk to other scientists openly about it. And it took that, you know, if you look at Jacques Vallée talking about the Invisible College, mm -hmm. it now made the, the Invisible College more visible. And, and so that's where what we're seeing right now is just that there's a we have up to 190 members that are now part of SCU. We're growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, we're encouraged to see that, that now people are talking about it more. In fact, we are uh, we openly promote collaboration between all of them uh, and get them to talk to each other. And uh, it's been really exciting. Well, let's talk about SCU. So like you said, it's the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, a wonderful organization. It's got some great names. And if you go on to explore scu.org, people can meet the team and see the different backgrounds that the different folks have that are involved. For those who might not be too familiar with SCU, can you explain what the organization does and how it came about? Sure. Uh let me tackle the how it became about because that'll help you to understand what it is, I think. Uh 
how it came about was uh, we all there were five of us that were all members of MUFON. Uh, I was the director of uh, strategic projects, and I had been the uh, uh, also the deputy director of investigations with them. I also was a state director for two states, Alabama and Mississippi. So I, I played a, a large role in the leadership, and I was connected to, of course, the leaders up in uh, at the organizational level. You had Robert Powell, who was also the director of research for MUFON. You had Morgan Bell, who was also a state director in Florida. Uh, you had Larry Cates, who was an individual who was a mathematician doing a lot of uh, with scientific studies uh, in support of a program that we had, as well as Carl Paulson, uh, who was a nuclear physicist. Uh, and all five of us came together on a on a basically a case that happened. It, it fell into our laps uh, while we were in MUFON. Uh, and it was the Aguadilla, Puerto Rico uh, case that happened in 2013. Mm -hmm. And what happened there was a, a, a Customs and Border Protection flight had actually witnessed an object, filmed it for about three minutes and 54 seconds. Uh, we got access to the video. We did the research. To, took two years to actually research the entire video. And we broke it into uh, 7,027 frames uh, and studied every pixel practically on every one of the images uh, and literally did a report. But let me clarify up front that we had to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which kept us from even talking about it within MUFON. And uh, that was kind of an awkward position since we were all in MUFON and we couldn't talk about it. Anyway, nevertheless, we did our study. We did the report. The uh, the pilot wanted it to treat it be treated seriously and scientifically, which we did. We wrote a, a paper, which is po posted on our website uh, on that case. It was 177 pages, I think, in in length. It's very detailed, uh, uh, where we talk about everything we did. And after we did that. There was a little bit of uh, angst amongst MUFON when they identified that we published this and it didn't go through them. And so we, we actually met with MUFON leadership and told them how, what, about the NDAA and how they got started. Uh, we, I, we also started to see that MUFON started to get into, I don't know, more of there's the woo factor. <laughs> they started to get into like the secret spaceship program and a whole bunch of other things. And that doesn't, this conspiracy angles and stuff like that are the things that scientists reject. They don't want to get into that, right? They're not looking for that. And so basically what we had to do is to, we pulled the scientists, basically, that all were getting ready to depart on their own uh, from MUFON. And we pulled them together and then we formed a, an SEU, basically. And then work to build it up. And we got it started in 2017 legitimately with as an incorporated organization and all the other stuff that you needed to do to file for that. Um, and so with that, it started off as just the five of us. And then we started to get these other scientists that were leaving MUFON that wanted to come on board. Other state directors from MUFON were also departing because they didn't see that that was uh, being treated scientifically enough for them. And so they wanted another kind of an alternative. So we suddenly went from there uh, in just short order up to, I think we had maybe like 45 people in the first year. And then suddenly now we're up to 190 and still growing. 
But the organization is basically set up so that we can, again, bring scientists together, have them collaborate. Uh, and I'm not just saying scientists. We've also got a lot of serious researchers and business professionals uh, that are in different you know, disciplines. We got every discipline covered. I think, you know, nuclear physics, we got mathematicians, we got uh, academia covered, we got, you know, psychology uh, people on board. So there's a a large base of of people that you can now have, uh, you know, interdisciplinary kinds of conversations with, and they can talk about it from their different angles and their different perspectives. And it's just, you know, we've just really blossomed. Uh, we've been, uh, we are a 501c3 uh, organization, which means donations and stuff like that. Or we're a charity organization. We registered that way. And in addition to that, uh, we hold, we've been holding conferences. Uh, we, this is uh, June 3rd through the 5th. We have our third conference. Uh, we had our first one in 2019. Lou Elizondo was our keynote speaker. Uh, we couldn't hold one in 2020 because of COVID. In 2021, we had a virtual conference. Uh, Hal Putoff was our uh, keynote for that. And then we've got the one coming up on June 3rd. Uh, Ryan Graves is going to be actually our keynote for that uh, one. But we've got a a great set of speakers and panels all talking about the science of ufology uh, and so UAP. Um, But anyway, so that's We've we got we publish a uh, a newsletter. We're all over the internet. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but there was the recent Gillibrand amendment that was put in uh, at the congressional level. Of course, at yep. one point uh, our names were there uh, as a com- part of a committee, uh, along with Project Galileo, to help the government be able to look into this. Uh, they changed it, and when they were writing the NDAA, uh, they took out those uh, us and Galileo in there. But I think that there's still going to be potentially down the road some sort of a a relationship that we're going to have with them, uh, although it's not stated. So we're excited about that. And in fact, we've been we've been also going and sharing uh, actually a a lot about the uh, the UFO subject with other governments. So we're we were connected in Canada. We were actually talking to one of the deputy prime ministers there enlightening them about the congressional action that they could be taking uh, and how they could support it. Uh, We've also got connections in uh, South America, and we're reaching out to those uh, countries down there to be able to build a relationship as well. And, uh, of course, we'd like to see the U.K. come on board with something (laughs) as well. But uh, So would I. I. Yep, so would I. Yeah, by all means. It would be absolutely fantastic to have the U.K. uh, connected with us as well. We do have people in the UK that are members of SCU and part of us, uh, so that's that's always encouraging, and uh, and glad that they're they're being uh, willing to do that. We've got people in uh, Germany. We've got also people in uh, the Netherlands that are on board with us. So it, it's growing internationally as well, and we're making some good solid, solid uh, connections. We are partners with UAPX. Uh, we are partners with also the Center for UFO Studies. Uh, and so, uh, and ultimately, we're trying to build those partnerships as well. Since the so organization. That's, that's pretty much about it, as far as I, what we're yeah, about. You've done a lot in what, four or five years? 
since its formation, has the the mission statement or the objectives of the group changed at all? No, actually, pretty much they're the, still the same. Uh, the, the the mission is, you know, that uh, obviously we're we're looking to be able to have conversations with the general public, uh, also to collaborate with each other and, and talk scientific uh, affiliations and have have that type of relationship. Uh, so our, our basically our roles, uh, our mission there is pretty much the same. Uh, we've advanced a little bit in terms of some of our directions we've gone. Uh, for example, you know, uh, we've got what well, we're trying to be able to play into more of a technology role. In other words, actually purchasing equipment, getting the technology out there, deploying it. Uh, there's a lot of technology online and coming to fruition from a lot of developments types. Ron Olch, for example, uh, is an, an individual that has a system that he's put together uh, that we featured actually last year in our uh, in our conference and stuff like that, that, that basically, uh, is very advanced. And, you know, we were considering purchasing a number of those. We'd like to be able to deploy some of that equipment type to like hotspots and have it set up, uh, you know, like at nuclear sites or something of that nature where there seems to be a lot of activity. Uh, we're also, again, because we are partnered with UAPX, you know, uh, we're also getting the, the information that they're collecting, they just did that study that was out along the coast and the West Coast where they were uh, setting up equipment. Um, they're actually going to feature and discuss that at the conference, share the evidence that they collected uh, because they did witness objects out there and they collected a multispectral information uh, that they're going to be able to share with us, how they studied it, how they analyzed it, what did they come up with. And so, again, we're, we're very excited about that as well. Um. That's going to also be part of their documentary. We've discussed that on the podcast, aterrinthesky.com. Again, links will be in the description for that. Uh, and if anyone's thinking, I've not went into too much detail on some of the work SCU have done. There's some fantastic listener questions coming up later on that I'll give the listeners the the credit for, for asking those without me having to take that. So we'll get there. Don't worry. Um, you mentioned an array of colleagues you have there, Rich. Now, you've got a lot of different areas of interest and expertise as pertains to the subject of UAPs or UFOs. Is there any one or two areas, though, that you all share a common interest in, be it propulsion, behaviours of, of UFOs, anything like that? Uh, well, we we actually have a project that we've got going on right now, which is looking at propulsion and, and basically atmospheric effects that have been witnessed in the sky and in water. Uh, so we are looking at propulsion effects in a study that we're doing. I don't know if that's what you're looking at. We, we, what we've done is we've formed teams and we have a project manager. Yeah. And in, the, in that concept, what we do is we take and tackle the project We've got the team coming together and a, there's a variety of people that are on, on board with the team that that are actually studying it from a standpoint of like, you know, a uh, good example. Uh, in the Nimitz case, you had basically uh, Lieutenant Commander Slate, who was the Wizzo in the other aircraft with uh, against with Fravor. You had a situation where he describes seeing when the object came up and before it shot off to the cap point that it basically, he noticed a mirage-like effect around the object. And so there's an effect in the atmosphere that was being seen where like a little bit of light bending going on. Mm -hmm. And then you have to like determine, well, what could produce that kind of an effect? 
And so some people are looking at that. You've also got cases where, for example, like I investigated a case in, uh, in the 70s where a wheat field, uh, in the middle of the wheat field, uh, there was a 70-foot in diameter circular area where, for example, you had microwave radiation that was being detected. And ultimately, the soil was baked two feet in the ground, and there were no roots left of the wheat crop. And on the outer perimeter of that 70-foot diameter area was a rotational pattern and then puffed wheat. So what does that? You know, and so we're looking at the, that kind of a characteristics and really studying it to see where, where it's at on all the cases we come across. Uh, that's just one of our studies. We've got uh, many others. I can talk to you about those as well. Nuclear studies. Well, I was going to ask, like, if if I was a rich benefactor and, you know, I won the Powerball or the lottery, whatever it might be in your chosen country, and I said, Rich, I'm going to give you a $100 million donation to study one particular area or aspect of this phenomenon, which would you go for? Um, well, I think, number one, the, the, the big thing that we're trying to figure out is uh, what is the intent when you have an object that's hanging over a pond, what is it doing? Why is it over the pond? Uh, why do you have cases where you have objects going to nuclear? Uh, why do you have objects coming in of water? Uh, what is there? When you saw that the objects, for example, in the Nimitz case, and I'll just use that one because a lot of people are familiar with it. Sure. But why do you have objects dropping from 100, 100 feet and then dropping down to sea level? you know, very quickly. Uh, what was the intent of the object uh, with regard to it circling around and doing the herky-jerky pattern above that, whatever that object was that appeared to be underneath the water in the ocean, right? So one of the, the, the most troubling things is trying to figure out what, what is the intent. Can we determine a potential alien intent uh, or is this, you know, and I'll just throw up, you know, the, the typical thing where we say it's another government, although I don't necessarily uh, agree with that, and it's never been another government. But ultimately, is what's the intent behind these things? So one of our projects we've got is actually doing research from 1945 to presently 1973, where we've gone back and looked at all the records, and we're pulling out the the where objects were seen next to or nearby to a, a nuclear storage site, a nuclear assembly plant, a nuclear stockpile, nuclear deployment sites, as well as looking at aerospace development test facilities. It's a five-phase project that we're doing all those. And we have a team that's going to be actually, they're going to be talking about this again at the conference, but, but ultimately we looked at cases that were around everything from like white sands to uh, man, the Manzano uh, test areas to like Han, uh, Hanford uh, and all these other nuclear plants that have been documented, trying to get as much as we can about, well, was it seen visually? Was it seen rate by radar? Was it seen optically uh, by other kinds of devices? Was it, and we started looking at all the devices that that was happening uh, in association with, with those cases. Uh, we are exploring 360 cases and we're looking basically right now to see if we can identify the, the GPS locations, where these objects were, and then what did they do when they were next to the facility? Did they hover? Did they shoot over it? Uh, were they 
or, and then looking beyond that and saying, well, was there something at that, that facility that was happening that would be of interest to them to come on that particularly that time period? So in other words, if I were actually getting ready to test uh, or de uh, test something, would that have triggered the uh, object to then come at that time? Uh, also, we're looking at the fact that you you might have a situation where you they were planning to transfer nuclear material. And so maybe that might have been the trigger for it. So we're actually looking very in, uh, intently, if you would, at those types of things to see if we can understand what is the draw? What did they do when they were there? What did the witnesses say that they did? Uh, and comparing all that stuff. And then we're using also as a control sample, we're, we're looking at the, the nearby Air Force bases, if there were any. We're looking at as well as the population centers that are nearby to some of these facilities to see if there was any increase in terms of like, you know, uh, the object sightings in the town as opposed to uh, at that site. So we're doing that. That's one thing where I, you know, I th I'm extremely encouraged by that. Number two, I think the 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 actual deployment of technical equipment is going to get us the big bang for the buck. And so, re in regards to the the money, I think that ultimately, if we took all the the, the types of cameras and and uh, radar kinds of uh, things that we can get that are military grade equipment, and we actually set that up, and you actually could potentially create a what we call in the IT world in the defense a called a honeypot, which is ultimately I go out and put some honey out there and the bees come to the honey, right? Well, have the objects come to you and then be prepared to actually capture a 360 degree uh, layer of equipment around that area and capture it from multiple angles, which will give you the altitude. It'll give you the apparent size of the object. It'll give you some sort of an indication from the 360 degree view that I'm talking about in both the optical as well as the, uh, the thermal and some of the other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that we don't typically get into. Also looking at gamma radiation, looking at a whole variety of other things. That's going to give us the biggest bang for the buck. Billionaire John Caldwell once said, If I'm lucky, I only get recruitment wrong 70% of the time. But how is it we accept being wrong so much of the time? With the cost of finding the right match for both people and organisations so high, it's imperative that you choose the right team to help you on that path. Recruitics is one of the fastest growing recruitment companies in the UK. With an expert team of dedicated, passionate, high experienced professionals, they are the perfect choice to make sure you get it right, first time, every time. With a range of departments covering almost all sectors, it doesn't matter if you need a highly specialised IT professional, a boots-on-the-ground salesperson, accountant, mechanical engineer, or anything else, they have the expert team in-house to ensure you find the resources you need. As a friend of the podcast, they will offer all new organisations wanting to give them a try heavily discounted fees to 10% of per annum salary, representing an enormous saving compared to the rest of the market. Just visit recruitix.co.uk UK, that's recruitix.co.uk. Leave your details, tell them the podcast sent you, and one of their expert team will be in touch. Now, I want to ask, what sort of honey are you using to attract any of those potential bees? Because 
most folk I'm going to presume would think it's some kind of nuclear material because like you've just said before nuclear 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 and there's a huge connection I would ask you know is that the case how would you go about that but also do you have any working hypothesis as to why these objects may be so drawn to to the nuclear capabilities or nuclear power stations etc well I, I okay so I think that that's what the intent of the study is to really understand why it is that they're attracted to them. Uh, we do look at it from a standpoint. I mean, obviously, when you have uh, these craft or the whatever these objects are uh, and wherever they're from, there, there's a variety of uh, things you can speculate on. Number one, let me give you an example. So uh, there's you know objects that are one of the hypotheses for the actual UFOs is that they're time travelers, that they're actually us from a potential future time that are coming back and actually maneuvering through time. They pop into our uh, our airspace, if you would. People see them and they zip out. We don't know where they go after that, right? They're gone. Uh, and, you know, the fact that you have descriptions of beings looking very humanoid-like, two eyes, two arms, two legs, you know, that type of thing. And they're, they're bipedal that would give you, give you, well, potentially they're us from a future time. And then, so if you looked at it with that hypothesis lens on, you could say, well, wait a minute, maybe at some point down the pike, we're gonna blow ourselves up and they're trying to influence that, right? So let me sit instead of like, you know, so they sending a message by, by knocking out like a set of 20 missiles under a, a, a silo could be a message that I'm trying to send, right? Uh, that, that could be one scenario, you know, if you look at it with a different lens on and say, well, wait a minute there, could they be an, an intelligence that's basically based under the ocean? And now they're popping in and around water. They seem to be around there. There's a good, strong connection between UFO sightings and water. Could you potentially have a situation where, and it seems like that around 1947, they suddenly came in mass, you know, after the, the Kenneth, Arnold sighting, not that there weren't sightings before that, but there were in mass, they were seen after that. And in fact, the whole country was reporting them. Uh, flying discs were everywhere, right? And so what were we doing around that time with nuclear? Well, guess what? We were setting them off. We were, we were doing atomic tests underneath the oceans and the atolls. And we were, you know, bombing the heck out of, you know, that the, the atolls and the water, right? Well, that would be a concern if you're living underwater, maybe, right? If you have a base under there. So why wouldn't you want to pop up and try to influence or change that and watch what the little ants are doing above you know, ground and try to see if you could uh, send a message? Well, the message might be to go to that missile base, deactivate the missiles, and, you know, and send a message that quit playing with nukes, right? Yeah. Okay. I don't... I was going to ask, did you happen to catch Linda Moulton Howe speaking to Lou Elizondo in the last week? I didn't yet. I, I've been no. too busy with the conference and everything else that I'm putting together, and I just haven't had the time to see it. But there was a there small section. Like yeah, there was a, there was a part where Linda Moulton Howe asked Lou about the. She talks about a few different things, and 
alien civilizations being on the planet for 270 million years and three different types of races. But within that, she talks about the idea that alien races won't let us blow each other up with nuclear weapons because, you know, it's, it's in their best interest. They're looking out for us. And, and Lou makes the point that, well, they never stopped, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They never stopped any number of the thousands of nuclear tests that happen every year. That's above ground in the water or, you know, out in deserts. And Linda just has to say, yep, that's a fair point. Again, do you think, again, it's speculating, but they're turning these things on and off. But at what point does that warning, it stops becoming a warning and either they let it happen or they do something about it themselves? Well, that's a good question because that's, you know, ultimately, you know, it's fun speculating about it and assuming that I understand what the, like an alien race would be thinking, which I don't, but ultimately it's a situation where there are subtle hints to that that are given, even if you look at uh, and investigate abduction cases. If you take a look at abduction cases, you have a situation where a lot of the report being taken aboard the craft. And at the same time, they're shown like a video of the earth being annihilated <laughs> by some sort of disaster of some sort. Right. And, and then you try to like, you know, sit back and say, well, well, what's that about? Do they care about us? You know, do they, is there a care there? Uh, and the answer would be probably, you know, if you looked at, at the cases, you'd say, well, maybe they do care about us, you know, that they, they are concerned. Uh, and so ultimately, it's a situation where they may have had a relationship, if you look throughout history, and of course, Jacques Vallée did that wonders in the sky, and, and a whole bunch of other people have captured that. Uh, you know, you can very readily say that every part of the planet has had, had UFOs or something like that, that they couldn't identify. Many of them called them gods or various other things that came down from the skies or whatever. But there's been that relationship between us and them for a very, very long time. So... You know, and it, I, I'll, this is like way off the deep end, but, you know, and certainly there's no proof for it. But if you look at the, the abduction phenomena, you'd say that, well, wait a minute, it looks like that they're doing some sort of genetic manipulation if you want to buy uh, all that whole thing. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, how did we come about? And was that genetic manipulation? And maybe they're actually helping us to evolve, right? Or maybe that's what led into our eventual evolution. Uh, so, uh, again, it's just speculation, but, it, it, you know, there's we don't know. And because we don't know, uh, and we don't know where they're from, and we don't know what their intent is, we struggle with trying to figure out all these things and trying to paint them and think of them as, you know, what humans would think of, you know, how would we think, right, when it might be totally different. And so ultimately, it's a situation where, you know, you try to make sense out of nonsense, if you would. And what it would appear to me is that that they have been here. They are concerned about us playing with nuclear toys and that they potentially might stop us I, because ultimately they're they're just we're destroying ourselves, you know. And so we might wipe out the entire planet. And maybe at that point, that's when they really come in and say, all right, you guys stop. And I, I go and harken back to, you know, I told you when I got started. I had to, uh, my teacher told me to talk about UFOs. And I said, well, flying saucers I saw in science fiction shows, right? The earth, the day the earth stood still is about the same kind of concept yeah. there. You know, I mean, if you think about it, it's like we're about ready to destroy ourselves or something like that. And so the, the message there was quit playing with these toys. 
you know, and start working together as humanity. And I'd certainly love to have that happen, but I mean, it hasn't happened. But there's been a, that's that would be one another way of looking at the uh, the nuclear type of thing. I think organizations, though, that all these questions we're coming up with and speculating, SCU, Galileo Project and others are trying to get some answers to some of these, which which is wonderful. I want to ask you, though, Rich, over the last few years, what to you has been the most compelling evidence for UFOs being constructed by something that's not necessarily human? Well, I mean, you, you have to look at the Nimitz case. I mean, that 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 case has got, you know, visual it's got radar it's got uh there were one point there was like a believed to be some sort of sonar uh, detection of something uh but you have you have uh all that that high advanced equipment that was there witnessing uh, or actually capturing a lot of information that we typically don't get and and i think that on that one particular case that you see a tremendous amount of evidence. And that's the one we spent the most time documenting. In fact, our report is up on our website is, is basically, I think it's, it's now not 177, it's 277 pages long. And, and, and it's like, you know, we actually interviewed the pilots. We interviewed the people on the Princeton. We interviewed the uh, other people who are around on the different ships. And it, to me, it, you know, when you when we looked at it from the physics standpoint, okay, when you have an object that's being described that goes from twenty thousand feet and it instantaneously stops above sea level in less than one second, point set in point seven eight seconds, right? When we do the math and we do the physics on that and we look at that, okay, first off, if you have an object that's about the size of the F F fifteen aircraft or, or, you know, the F-18 aircraft, excuse me, uh, if you have a, and you assume that it has about that same amount of weight and you took that and you dropped it, if you would think about that, it's got to, it's going to accelerate down. And then about maybe halfway point, our technology would say you'd have to, uh, you know, put on the brakes if you would, mm. and in order to stop above the water. So, Think about that in terms of the acceleration down halfway point, and then suddenly now it's decelerating to actually come to a complete stop. We haven't got anything that can do that. The material that that we have would have disintegrated on the way down because it couldn't have taken uh, the, that kind of G-force at all. You have an object that was recorded uh, both on uh, video as well as the when uh, Fravor saw it go to the cap point, uh, as well as you have a measurement of the object that if you were dropping from 20,000 feet and stopping at sea level. So there's three different measures there. All of them exceeded something on a scale of about Mach 50 or 55. You know? And so with that kind of speed, which we have nothing on the planet that can do that at all, and we've got nothing structurally that could have withstood the G-force. We have nothing that were uh, that that actually can basically make it zero mass, if you would, where it was dropping from that height. No sonic boom. The kinetic power would have been the equivalent of the output of Hoover Dam. And so, how do you have any? And, and it's not 
aerodynamically sound at all in terms of the shape. There were no indications of any propulsion system on that object at all. And you're not seeing any massive heating up in the atmosphere of an object like you would if you had something that was by hypersonic, uh, you know, all these hypersonic missiles that are going more than Mach 5, you know, they heat up in the atmosphere. So you have to have the right materials to be able to, to deal with that. We haven't got anything that can overcome that. And yet, when you take a look at that one case, it corresponds equally with a case from 1955 or something in 1954, where they talk about an object that was hovering and that went, it took instantaneous acceleration, would shoot off, make 90 degree turns that would, that would not apparently heat up. There was no sound, no sonic boom. And so the similarities throughout history have always been the same as it was with the Tic Tac. So the Tic Tac is not necessarily unusual in itself, it's, it's the fact that you had so much excellent, credible witnesses that makes, to me, in my mind, the, the most compelling case. It's an, it's an event I know very well, especially doing the podcast. Everyone brings it up. People ask me about it outside and, and work and things like that. But when you, when you rhyme off all those data points and measurements and sources, it, it brings it back to how incredible that event is and, and, and was. Why aren't more mainstream scientists if i can use that phrase interested in that particular case when if you want to forget about laughing about ufos and flying saucers and little green men when you go to scientists and surely the whole idea of being a scientist or you know being involved in physics and and engineering when you hear about something doing that why aren't more people gravitating towards this subject in a big way that is all for this week's show thank you very much for listening please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform you can like retweet and subscribe that would all be very much appreciated the shows are being uploaded onto youtube as we speak more and more you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that ufo podcast to access the shows ad free as well please get in touch on twitter facebook instagram that ufo podcast of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, UAPAM. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was wet. And I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And I think I should see. Because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think I'd be, I guess you and me and us and we and him and her 
Thank you.